0: Today, I am rerunning the interview I did with Ed Asner. He's charming, he's funny, he's talented, he's generous. He is beyond honest, beyond straightforward, always in touch with who he really is and true to himself, even when being true to himself has cost him. This is the extraordinary Ed Asner. So, I'm here with Ed Asner. I interview people who make their living or their life with an art.
1: You call what I do art, sister?
0: Yes, brother, I do.
1: (laughs) Boy, are you off the (laughs) base.
0: Well, what would you call it then?
1: Uh, getting rid of excess adrenaline rid without of? getting into a fight,
0: and at the same time as you are getting rid of your excess adrenaline, other people manage to be entertained. How clever of you!
1: Well, the amazing thing is they never see the strings.
0: <laughs> well, maybe maybe you will tell us about them.
1: <laughs> well, they may well imagine psychological the strings. strings. Yes, yeah, yeah. yes. Uh, the director certainly will. <laughs>
0: So um, this is it. I always ask the same question. What, what was the very first moment that it occurred to you that you would want to act or that acting would be something that would uh, compel you, or I'm not sure how you would think about it, but the very beginning?
1: I, I think it always was there. Yes. The uh, the uh, desire to jump up and down and uh, and blow imaginary farts. <laughs> uh, it was always there, but I was uh, from a bourgeois family mm-hmm. in uh, Kansas City, Kansas, and you, you didn't think in those terms. Those were, those were the grown-ups out there ah. who uh, were either gorgeous enough or, or melodious enough to succeed uh, at those distant things called movies and radio. Uh, I did radio in high school. Well,
0: wait, 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 wait. I want to know, I want you to talk about the desire to jump up and down and do imaginary farts. Did you do, did you? No, a lot of times I weren't imaginary. <laughs> <laughs> but,
1: but, I no did that.
0: <laughs> but did you entertain for your family? I mean, were you a show-off? Did you, were you a jokester? Were you the family or the I was the crowd? jokester,
1: but, uh, but I, I uh, my, my brother was the scheming uh, jokester. He would lay traps. Oh my! Oh yeah. For and, you? Uh, for everybody, and he would he would scheme, and he was a regular Ulysses. Oh. And I, I was kind of a jumping jack clown, mm-hmm. and all the way until I got into um, into high school, and I uh, I was viewed as a clown by my peers.
0: So was that? Did it Did it please you?
1: No. No, oh. Oh, it pleased me while I was doing it. And then there was always the depression afterwards, as there is with almost all clowns. Yes. Um, so
0: you knew that even then. You knew even then that the activity was energizing, but there was a price.
1: Yeah, that you weren't being taken seriously. Oh, God, right. And that's 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 a very, uh, again, I, was, I certainly regarded my my blood as serious blood, my flesh as serious blood. Yes.
0: Well, and this is, it seems to me, quite a dilemma if you have an inclination to entertain and you can't, and it it drives you, it motivates you to do that, and then later you have regret?
1: Yeah, which is why when I, my junior and senior year in high school, when I went into radio, Hmm. it became perfect because then I could be the leading man and sweep you off your feet and feel your kisses and, and feel my kisses. And I, I was able to sell myself as this glorious, monstrous, handsome devil. Yes. And uh, never never had to expose myself.
0: Yes. <clears throat> I understand as I do radio.
1: Mm-hmm. <laughs> it's
0: a magic uh, medium.
1: Well, little do your listeners know that <laughs> I am that gorgeous, handsome devil and you are the ravishing beauty queen <laughs> that you're reputed to be. So and we're gonna ride off into the sun at any it, minute now. If the horse ever shows
0: <laughs> So um, this is so interesting to me. So so you had an opportunity that a lot of people don't have to reinvent yourself on the radio.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: Right? Mm-hmm. To, yeah, that's, that's great. And it must have been also very uh, compelling, seductive. Yeah,
1: you, you look at the famous voices of radio, for Christ's yeah. sake, Martin Gable. Oh, yes. Never swept you off your feet. No. Uh, no. Um, well, well. What's his name? Uh, yeah. Note of Triumph and all that. Beautiful. Norman Corwin.
0: Corwin. I interviewed him. Beautiful He's 101 man. years old. Yeah. And he talked about, he loved Martin Gable. Oh, yeah. Yeah, he thought Martin Gable was better than... Orson Welles. right. He uh, loved my. He thought Martin Gable was better than Orson, yeah, and he used Orson yeah.
1: too. And uh, though I enjoyed it all, uh, I, I, at the same time being in Kansas City, Kansas, uh, high school radio or go to the big city and get into radio, then uh, you don't, you don't create vistas that easily. Wow. And,
0: uh, How old were you?
1: I was 17, 18. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So I went to the University of Chicago instead.
0: And did, what did you major
1: in? You didn't major at that time. You took placement tests, which determined what... <laughs>
0: they you. told you what to do. Yeah.
1: Which is fine. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Gave, make sure that you had got a, a well-rounded education, which would give you your Chicago B.A., which was not accepted everywhere. Oh. But, um, but you had an education. And I hardly approved of that. I decided to go to summer school because I wanted to get out of college as quickly as possible. And my little roommate, who was from Newark, was in the theater group, which was all extracurricular. Oh, they were doing a radio, uh, a closed-circuit radio at our dormitory system. And um, I said, why did we, in high school, what do you think? uh, He thought I was a a hick from Kansas who played football. Kind of ridiculous for him to listen to me, but he said, well, let, let me hear you read. So they had given me a copy of the Song of Songs, and so I stood at one end of the room and read to him, and his little jaw fell open. Where did you learn to read like that? Yeah, I went, oh, (laughs) shucks. So he was impressed, I did a a roll on the radio show. Then he came home, bustling home one day, and he said, "Uh, you're going to summer school, and listen, they're they're going to do Murder in a Cathedral. As the summer show, a uh, uh, play, uh, yeah, check the book out. You can do any of the characters in it. I checked the book out. I didn't read it. I went to the reading. I read. And I ended up doing the lead, as well as starting a, an affair with the lady of the chorus.
0: <laughs> Both hooked you. Yes. So when you say that, hooked you.
1: So it was always, to me, it was always... Theater and sex—they go arm in arm, yeah, yeah. or leg and leg, yeah, or
0: something and something. Mm-hmm. Yes.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: Yeah. Well, they're both—I um, use the word again—seductive.
1: Yeah. Mm-hmm.
0: Yeah. They get the heart pumping.
1: But is, yeah, you think sex is seductive? I do. I know. <laughs> get your hands off.
0: <laughs> it's hard. <Okay. laughs> yes, right. <laughs> so. Um, so I'm I'm interested you know that I, I was hooked does that mean I felt alive I felt at home I felt excited I wanted to do this what does that mean
1: I did I did the lead two out of three nights the the third night uh, the other guy who had appeared for Thomas was given that choice and uh, Uh, So I would do the fourth tempter. Uh, The second night I did it, which was the last night, Shag Donahue ran the Red Door Bookshop, and he played the third tempter. The tempters and the priests are all lined up on either side of the stage while I'm doing the the last uh, soliloquy. And when I finished the soliloquy, he's up on his perch. And as the curtain came down, he said, Terrific, Terrific! Terrific! And I, like a Jew at the Wailing Wall, nodded, Yes, 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 I was. And it, uh, it sent me into the rafters, that, that accomplishment. And, um uh, It was hard to resist. Mm -hmm. I shortly thereafter, with my father's help, uh, pulled out of college.
0: With your father's help?
1: Yeah, he stopped paying. (laughs) Really? (laughs) Oh, yeah, I was involved with the Shiksha, he found out.
0: Oh, 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 wow. And so he punished you?
1: Well, he also knew I wasn't going to class either. Oh, well.
0: Okay, so he... uh, he was right. Yeah, he was right and you were lucky.
1: And at the time, uh, I was already cast as, uh, crayon in Oedipus Rex, which was to happen in February. This is after the Christmas vacation. The revelation came and that's when he pulled the plug. So I went back to Chicago to supposedly get my stuff together and everybody told me, you gotta stay, you gotta stay, you gotta do, you gotta do, uh, crayon called home to say that I am coming home, but I'll come home after the uh, after the play is finished performing the performer play. My sister was doing the talking. She was carrying the messages from my father off camera. And um, he said, listen, uh, tell him uh, he didn't make it as a student. He won't make it as an actor. And I said, well, I'll be the judge of that. Subsequent to that, He said, um, if you could sing like Eddie Fisher, then I can understand. But uh, I said, well, I don't sing like Eddie Fisher, but I'm still singing as an actor. That alienation was short-term, really. Mm -hmm. When I finally came out of the Army and joined Playwrights Theater Club in Chicago, finally uh, I was going to do Rabbi Azrael. In the Dibbuck. So uh, I said it would be a good time for him and Mom to come up and see me uh, do the show.
0: So is that the first time they saw you on stage?
1: Yeah. Wow. Yeah. Well, that's when they should. Yeah. So uh, she cooked up a bunch of chicken and brought it to the hotel that they were staying at. Uh, I told them I was in charge of the cleaning detail at the theater. And this one, when they came to the theater, they uh, came up the stairs and, uh, from an ill from a rarely used uh, stairwell. And uh, his hands were twice as big as mine. Uh, his nails were cracked and black from the work all his life. There he is up there in that picture up there. He's ah. on the right. Wow. He says, "Listen." Uh, you're in charge of the cleaning. Is that stair, that that handrail, was dirty? You got to you got to see that that's taken care of. <laughs> I said, you're right, Pop. You're right. I'll, I'll, I'll get I'll get on it. They saw the show that night. Yeah, good seats. A couple of girls uh, sat next to my mother, and um, when I was going through my simmus on the stage. She uh, nodded one of them. and said, that's my son. Said, oh, oh, he's wonderful. He's wonderful. She nodded, yes, of course. And then um, um, he he gruntingly said it was good. I later found out that uh, he went back to Kansas City and said, I'm not So he, uh, he seemed so old. My father was in it, close to 80 by this time. He seemed so old. Uh, I wanted to get up on that stage and help him. <laughs> so I, I knew I. You had, I had it. Passed, oh passed, my passed
0: God! That's so glorious.
1: Yes.
0: It's wonderful too that you got that. Mm-hmm. Who told you that? That he said that. Do you remember?
1: Yeah.
0: Right. So okay. So now you're what in your twenties? Mm. Right. And uh, and you're 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 a working actor. You're a part of a company, right? So you're and you're in where? You're in Chicago?
1: Yeah, that only lasted two years. So then. By that time, Paul was getting into improv theater. He started the Compass, which mm-hmm. which sprang off Mike and Elaine uh, and. Shelley Berman and Barbara Harris. Yeah. And you? I was too ego-driven to submerge myself in improv, and I wanted to take the reviews I had garnered and rush to New York with them. And be a star. Hmm.
0: It's interesting that you keep you keep mentioning this bourgeois thing. You don't feel the slightest bit bourgeois.
1: I don't what? Like.
0: Feel bourgeois.
1: Oh, I- I think it's the natural state. You do? Oh, God.
0: And you think you are still? Yeah.
1: Yeah.
0: Well, you hide it so well.
1: Well, maybe I work at it.
0: Maybe. Well, it's successful. But then you're an actor.
1: Hmm.
0: (laughs) Okay. So you said, um, very nice, guys, um, but I don't want to do this, and here are my wonderful reviews, and I'm on my way to New York.
1: I, I suppose tentative Mention was made to me, but I had no burning interest to pursue mm-hmm. it. So um, I took my reviews and ran. And when I saw the subsequent uh, smash hit of yeah. Mike and Elena... Oh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, well, okay. Perhaps that was not okay. the smartest thing I ever did. Okay. I, I don't really think I envied them, their success. I envy a lot of people their success, and I... And I want to reduce it if possible.
0: Other people succeed. Yeah.
1: But I didn't feel that way necessarily about them. And I still didn't want to uh, become a master of improv. Mm-hmm. And in the end I, you know, I, I have to say I think I'm good at it. Pick up Kleenex with the cheeks of my ass so easily. Mm-hmm. I'm sure. Yeah. yeah. I'll show
0: you. <laughs> I can't wait. So. I'm so sorry it's not video.
1: <laughs> <laughs> well, I'll have to take our word for it. <laughs>
0: Right. Mm-hmm. Ooh. <laughs> mm-hmm. Not yet. <laughs> so you you went to New York, and how old are you now then?
1: New York was fifty-five, so I would be twenty-six. Okay. Or Twenty-five. Okay.
0: Young and hungry and coming off success.
1: Yeah, I got to New York and I. Uh, I said, "Well, I Zora Lampert was one of our companies. She, she was regarded as a star already by many. So uh, I was going to go along and uh, hopefully be a uh, a shadow to her success. Mm-hmm. So then uh, I got in New York, and I was fortunate to um, uh, see." Uh, my uh, Oedipus, who was living in New York by this time, and he had an apartment that uh, that he could share with me, 3rd uh-huh. uh, and uh, 15th. So I moved in with him. It was a walk-up, and roaches and bedbugs and everything. But it was fine. I think it cost $72, $76 a month. I didn't expect to get anywhere, but I would... Uh, I, I, I got whatever directories and guides were out for actors at the time. And I just blocked them off. And I'd go to producers' offices and agents' offices every day within a certain area, to leave my picture and resume, and hopefully uh, hear from them. Uh, and I'm sure that in most cases they threw it right in the police basket. But at the same time, I looked up uh, Carmen Capelbo and uh, Stanley Chase, who were the producers of Penny. We had done a pirated version of Threepenny in Chicago. Do you sing? And, uh, huh?
0: Do you sing? Oh,
1: yeah. Huh? Oh. Well, I'm not a trained singer, but I sing. You're not yeah. as good as Eddie Fisher. That's right. But where's he now? <laughs> not really. Yeah, really. So they were intrigued by my chutzpah to come there after I participated in a pirate version. Well, they took my picture and they said they'd call and sometime, and they called in December. You don't like that?
0: No, I like it, but it makes noise, so I'm
1: waiting for it. We're talking about a piece of candy, folks.
0: Yeah. <laughs> uh,
1: so uh, I had agreed to do a walk-on, which was what it turned out to be. I howled like a wolf. A production of Venice Preserved*, a one-night presentation at the Phoenix Theater. And I said, oh, I was committed to that. And I wanted to cut my wrist. I said, oh, don't worry about it. Jobs are always coming up uh, in, in the show, replacements. We'll call again. I said, okay, okay. So come February, they called me again to come in and uh, do Bob the Saw, one of the cooks. And I came in. Immediately came down with strep throat. Oh, gee was out for a week. Bobasaw had to understudy the police chief, the third male of the show.
0: Leon Janney
1: was doing uh, Peachum, which is the role I had done in Chicago. Leon Janney um, finally announced that he was leaving, and the guy playing the police chief was leaving like a week earlier. And Leon, feeling for me and knowing how much I wanted to do Peachum, said, uh, all right, I'll tell him early. He was a great Decent guy, and he gave his notice. And uh, I said, I'd like to audition for that role. So they heard me, and they said, okay. Wow. And I went in and did him. I did for two and a half years. wow I was a very psychologically disturbed fellow. I didn't, uh, I didn't believe in what I was doing. I was. Fitting the mold. Uh, there was no individualistic input. I wasn't able to give my, any of my own creative, and the guilt haunted me.
0: Really? Mm. Well, um, so I have a bunch of questions about that. It, you knew it at the time that you were not investing yourself in it.
1: Investing myself, yes, but being somebody's saw it, somebody else's puppet.
0: Right. But not you, right? You knew it at the time. You did it because you thought it was expedient or because you, I don't know.
1: I'm well, you're all, you're, you're all based on timing, roughly the right. same timing. Right. You can't take too long on your soliloquy because people are waiting in the wing. Right, right, right. Uh, or you can't take too long on an answer because somebody has a response. Mrs. Peachip may have the next laugh. Right, it's, right. it's that kind of crap. Uh
0: So are you saying it couldn't be done in that play, or that you...
1: Well, I'll tell you what.
0: Mm
1: -hmm. Um, Haunted by this guilt for for forever and ever and ever. And along came Evergreen Books came out with the paperback version of the Three Penny novel Mm -hmm. by Brecht, but written after the success of Three Penny. And I read it, and I said, oh, my God. Oh, my God, how wonderful, how wonderful, that's great. I've got to become that man, I've got to become Which was not the man in, in the play day. that ah. we were doing. Wow. So I went out there and sang my opening um, song in the first act. Wake up, you damn godless, wake up. Come open your sinful blue eyes. Da 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 Hello, Wheezy. I'm my baby. Oh, I didn't remember that in the play. i my baby. Hello. So. Weezy it's a a wind, is a beautiful
0: cat. Yes, he is, isn't he? Yes. Oh, my goodness, with beautiful yeah, blue eyes.
1: He's been <laughs> out in the sun. Yes. Hi, Weezy. Mm-hmm. Want to
0: be yeah. in the? <laughs> mm-hmm. Yeah, you
1: is. Yeah. Uh-huh. Yeah. So I decided I was going to do it a la the Evergreen, the, uh, the three-penny novel. Right. Yeah. So I went out there uh, sang a song, the first uh uh, speech to the audience. Mm-hmm. And, uh, I tried my first alteration, maybe my second alteration, but in there were two laughs that I normally get. Mm-hmm. The last didn't happen. And I said, oh, sweet Jesus, <laughs> I can't do this any longer. I, And like a goddamn coward, I jumped back into into my mold. Never tried it again.
0: Is that what you regret?
1: Yeah, but I was too young. I mean, Mm -hmm. why why the hell should I? And finally, when I was in the show long enough, I went to the weirdest psychological torture you could ever imagine. Uh, my inner voice on me get out of here get out of here go go become a person so I'd come to the show and I'd say oh I'm going to blank out in the first scene didn't matter whether I went over the lines or not I'm sure I didn't go over the lines didn't matter
0: it's the inner it's the the, the civil war
1: yeah I went in did the first scene and for several nights at least I would just be on the verge of blanking out and then would come up with the words, finally, the last moment. Rote, of course, was in control. Right. Rote did it, but I allowed myself to, to be a disturbed person inwardly. And not until I got to the very edge of the brink could I successfully and proved to myself that I knew the next word, and then came back from the brink, and, and then it would begin with the second scene, then the third scene. So it took place over a period of two weeks. I went through this torment, which would have deranged a weaker person.
0: I'm sure, and you must have been exhausted.
1: No, I can't remember anything else except the, the mental torture I was going through. And finally, I I went through all the scenes. Survived them all. I think maybe one time I had to I put in a different word, maybe, than was written, and uh, could then go on. But I when I finally left the show, I left it to be a replacement. In an off-Broadway, another off-Broadway show, Smaller House. They'd gotten the best reviews of the season. It was Ivanov. Uh. Uh, but the newspaper strike was on, so nobody knew about it. <laughs> but I went in to take Jack Bittner's place, and uh, I developed the character as I wished to see him develop, and I felt so fucking free. Yeah. Oh, God. Just thinking about that period, period, yeah. in and I was—I—I've I'm, I'm, become exhausted just thinking about it. I believe
0: it. Well, you were at war with yourself, weren't you? Yeah. There's nothing more exhausting than that.
1: Mm-hmm. But what I find
0: myself thinking is that you must have been an actor from, as you say, the beginning, because when you were able to be the actor you wanted to be. That is what enlivened you. That is what was so freeing, that you were yourself finally.
1: Well, I suppose that applies to all those acting teachers I went to. Uh, I never found any of them satisfactory or pertinent. I studied with Mira Rostova, and I think I studied with her and liked her because I innately did what her method was. That was your
0: natural way to be. Okay, so uh, now you're about 28, 30 not even.
1: I don't. What year are you?
0: Ivanov. Oh, I
1: was uh, oh, 27. Sweet.
0: 27? So you're still very young, and now you're in New York. But you now you're you're really an established actor.
1: No, no why? Well, you're working because they- Bob Kidd, New York actor who came out to Chicago, he had gotten up a uh, a reading of a group of us, of Marlowe's Edward the Second. They had Monday night openings at the the Delease where we performed Threepenny. I was busy doing one of the leads in uh, Edward II. He wanted to take it to Lucille Lortel, the owner of the theater, see if we'd get a Monday night gig there. So we did. We did the reading. And um, she said yes, that she would uh, have us do the Monday night reading but that uh, only if uh, a protege of hers could take my role. Bob met with us and uh, said, uh, well, I feel we should say no. And I'm looking at these actors, none of whom had jobs. And I said, no, 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 no. I've got a job. And this is to get you jobs. So by all means, take the bitches offer." They did nothing ever came of it. I'm not saying that anything would have come of it. But I think each individual actor. had to be somewhat disheartened at doing that with that kind of condition. Right. Uh, You're saying
0: that you think that it's possible that the disheartening had an impact on the
1: production. I would have been disheartened. I would have. Right. I mean, I might have gone out there and said, "Oh, oh give it full bore," you know. Right. But uh, if I followed. A silver tassie long enough. I might find the disheartening at the bottom of it.
0: So well, what happened then?
1: Oh, I did a I did a few shows at this point. I was 58. The summer of 59, I got married, and the agency got me into Stratford. I think it's because my wife was part of the agency. The contract read "ass cast," which meant you do shit jobs. Right. I did the shit jobs, and I did them well. And we had a gorgeous time, because for the first time in my life, I wore boots that were made for me. Skin tight tight. (laughs) tights. I mean, luxuriant wardrobe. And uh, we came back to uh, New York, and got together on another couple more off Broadway shows. I'd scored big in Chicago with being Prospero in the Tempest, mm. and the director of the Tempest came to town, and he wanted to reprise that triumph. Couldn't get the actual cast that we had then. Improvised for the most part, we put it on Seventy East 74th Street Theater, and um, it was Brooks. Atkinson's next to the last review. And he came there, and uh, he said, uh, I, as Prospero, sounded like a train conductor. And, uh, and I was not disheartened. I was, I was just mad as hell. Mad, because I knew that by the time the son of a bitch would see me again and eat his words, he'd already be retired. So that's what, I, I was just mad. And uh, then in the summer of 60 came along, and the assholes at Stratford offered me shitty roles again. Mm-hmm. I said, no, no, no thing. And, um, um, Face of a Hero. had been a success on Playhouse 90. Rip Torn was had starred in it so they got together this production so uh, Sandy McKendrick the great director of all the Guinness movies was uh, the director at the cocktail party the night before rehearsals began he said uh, love your reading of course you can't be that funny (laughs) and the character was written to my knowledge both for the perjury and the laughs. Right. I said, well, he's the great director. He'll protect me. Right. Uh, he didn't do shit for me. Uh, tried to bury me, actually, in certain many ways. Once again, I was hating what I was doing, hating what he was directing. So, <laughs> we go on. We finally got up in Boston. And they finally brought in Harold Clearman to uh, take over. And he tried to uh, restructure the leads primarily. Told me to just go on doing what I was doing. And, uh, and for a few days it succeeded, but then he left. And, and the actors reverted to their former uh, fuck-up. So we finally got to New York, and it didn't get good reviews. It, it didn't get terrible reviews, but it just was flat. And we had to close by Christmas. And I thought, well, there's my Broadway debut. And I was very disappointed. I'd been working uh, Sunday morning shows, that type of thing. Mm -hmm. I'd been doing Studio One, uh, Armstrong Circle Theater, Mm -hmm. Omnibus. I'd been working my way up. Decoy was my first film TV, and it was a piece of shit. (laughs) Then I got A Naked City. I liked doing it, and I liked the effect of it. I think it was also Robert Duvall's first uh, TV. So then um, did a Route 66 in New Orleans, sent on to the same people, with Bruce Dern, that came off well, came back, and then they decided in March to shoot two naked cities simultaneously. Paul Burke and I were sent to L.A., the first time they were out of L.A., really. To extradite Bobby Blake and Frank Sutton, two brothers. And uh, Harry Beliver and Horace McMahon stayed and did a show in New York. So it introduced me to Hollywood. and Everybody said, you got to meet this one, you got to meet that one, you got to meet them." one. Finally met an agent or two who wanted me. So I called my wife. First I said, I want to take another week and meet some of these. And she said, oh, shit. (laughs) I took the other week. I met the people, and I finally decided I wanted to. Mm -hmm. So I agreed with the agent. We moved in May. I got a Route 66 to do in Youngstown, Ohio, which I was going to do on the way. Did the Route 66, and we zigzagged our way across America, pulling a 14-foot U-Haul. Got here in May of 61. we stayed with a friend in Hollywood for 10 days. Found a gorgeous little apartment on an estate up at the middle crossroads of Mulholland or Woodrow Wilson. We mm. stayed there for a year and a half, and then found a house that Herbert Biberman, one of the Hollywood Ten, mm. was the salesman on. Oh, why? It was a cantilever house, and we loved it. We mm. bought it.
0: So now you're in Hollywood. How far are
1: you taking me?
0: As far as you'll go.
1: I don't think I've got that kind of energy. <laughs> I was my mama's Jewish prince. After my father died and I was appearing in guest shots on TV, I'd call home and tell mom. And uh, after I called on one particular show that I was going to be on, and she said, well, we wrong, and I'm glad. Um, those words are in blazing on my mind. I'm
0: uh, in your heart, I'm sure.
1: Yes. Viva's alone and I'm glad.
0: So much of your career was disappointing to you, and yet you've had an extraordinary career. So how did you wind up with the the success that we all know you had?
1: Well, ego is a tremendous driving force. Is it? mm mm-hmm. Tell me. I told you about Brooks Atkinson. Mm -hmm. I subsequently was hired to do a revival of Born Yesterday Mm. in about 89 or 90 with Madeline Kahn. Great talent. And um, we opened on Broadway to, I I imagine, the worst reviews I've ever gotten in my life. Frank Rich began his review by saying, I never liked this play the first time I saw it. Walter Kerr wrote two separate reviews both attacking. Uh, I think the only good review was Vincent Canby. John Simon sliced it. Everyone sliced it. But what I took pride in, we lasted in New York for five months. I felt so fucking proud that I went out there each night and I discovered new things all the time. Kept working at it. And I Made myself more proud of my performance. Now, this, this, you can probably guess from this, that me my first performance in New York was shit. But I know that by the time we ended our five-month run in New York, I was a goddamn good, Harry brock. You bury yourself with alternatives.
0: For me, it's an interesting response. Someone else might not have taken this as a spur to be better and better and better, mm-hmm. to, to live up to one's own standard. Mm-hmm. I, I think that's not about ego. I, I think that's something else. And I think that that may be the difference between the real thing and, well, I don't know, the pseudo thing, that a, that a real actor, and maybe this is more than, that, than just having to do with being an actor, but a, a person who has their own standard to which they intend to aspire. I think that's an extraordinary thing, and I don't—I wouldn't call that ego, actually. I, it's something else.
1: I don't know what to call it, but... Well, ego usually
0: di- dismisses it. I mean, you know, people talk about ego, and it's got a kind of negative connotation. But I think what you're talking about is something very wonderful, that to have that, to be bigger than what people say about you. I think that is what grown-ups are
1: you know. That's nice.
0: Well, I, I really do, and, and and of course, it makes it possible for you to be your best you.
1: Well, I was my best you when I ended up. I'll let them have that opening if they wish. But I was proud of what I did. also determined that New York and its minions is not something that I'm willing to lay my heart on the sacrificial altar of. Right, right. So, if we appear there again, I'm going to be very careful as to who I am and what I'm doing. And, um, Not expect zilch from them. Right, but it, but it won't I, matter
0: because you'll be get because you'll be doing it for you.
1: That's who I'm doing it. For.
0: I know, I know. So did you then say screw this, back to Hollywood TV? Here I come or something?
1: Yeah, yeah. Uh, I was still being controversial. Oh no. Mm-hmm. While there, they asked me to do a um, PSA for the um, UJA in New York. Uh huh. They had a joint gathering at Columbia to celebrate attempts at peace for the Arabs and and Jews. And um, I went to this performance night, as a guest, some Palestinians sang, danced, Jews sang, danced. And after the performance, there was a guy from Newsday there, a reporter, who was with an Israeli. And he had a Uriah heapish quality to him. He's busy smiling and ingratiating. He said, have you been to Israel? And I said, no, I haven't. He said, yeah, you'll find it very interesting. The, the Intifada was going on while I was there. And I said, well, when I go to Israel, I'm not going to go there to enjoy the Intifada or words to that effect. Wow. <laughs> oh, God. And then he said, I noticed you applauding after one of the Palestinian songs. Uh, I said, yeah, that was the Palestinian anthem. I said, oh, really? Well, uh, I I don't know what the words were. Do they say anything about killing Jews in there or anything? He says, no, no. I said, said, that's great. A few days later, he wrote about it. Uh Uh-oh. And he said that when they sang the Palestinian anthem, I applauded it to a very high extent, big, big time. Went to the theater after I read his piece, and uh, a PR person for the show said they had received a call from a PR person for the UJA, UJA. saying that the PSA had been canceled. Right. Mrs. Tish was the head of the UJA. And I said, well, why did you cancel? He said, well, they've gotten so many calls complaining about what was said in that article. And I thought, well, that's very interesting that something appears in the uh, press and people call the UJA immediately to make a complaint. Right. What, you cock a shit. No kidding. And I said, fine, that'll save me money. (laughs)
0: Life has not always been fair to you.
1: No, it had not been fair, but uh, that's what you should expect.
0: You seem to roll with it.
1: Well, I believe the expression is, life goes on. My life is acting.
0: Yes, I know.
1: <laughs> and if they don't want me, then fuck them.
0: Yeah, but somebody else always does.
1: Yeah, and uh, I find that true. When I became embroiled, when uh, Lou Grant was canceled unceremoniously. Jesus. Uh, my agent put it best. He said that um, because... I announced the contribution to Medical Aid for El Salvador in Washington, D.C. at a big press conference, filled with overflow crowd of reporters. Uh, I somehow ended up being the spokesman for the group. I read the opening preamble of what our contribution was about. And the first or second question I was asked by a cable reporter who said, you say you're in favor of free elections in El Salvador? I said, yes. Well, what if they the free elections produce a communist government and immediately I realized what I had gotten into. Right. Yet again. I said yet again. I here I was performing what I considered an act of humanism. Right. And I was being called a commie for right. contributing to the idea of communism. And I gave some lame answer, but I also saw that one what I answer will determine whether I live or die in the business. Um, I went on to do another answer and was plagued in my mind all the whole time I was going on, this think. And I had avoided being controversial up until this point as an actor, never, never being in the forefront of controversy. And I said, uh, so, I avoided it all this time and I've come all this way to DC and am I to once again throw a cloak around me and deny who I am and what I stand for so I turned back to that cable report. I wasn't satisfied with my initial answer. What I would say to you is that if it's the government, the people of El Salvador choose, then let them have it. Now, that was never thrown back into my face, but the whole controversy about me, the whole storm about me, the show being canceled, uh, death threats, etc.
0: Oh, you're kidding.
1: Oh, yeah. the Death threats don't mean shit.
0: Well, they, they mean you pissed someone off. Huh? You pissed someone off. Oh, yeah,
1: well. But you'll also find that there are people who will come forward and say that they heard a death threat, and they'll... Say that, so that they can become oh, yes. uh, uh, part of your alliance to to be your good friend. Oh dear. Yeah. So oh. that they perhaps even manufacture the death threat. Got it. So that they, they, they
0: so uh, that they have an alliance with we're you. We're trying to help. Yeah. Right.
1: Um.
0: So did they tell you that uh, that Lou Grant was canceled because of this?
1: No, but uh, there was a great storm of controversy and. Uh, Really, uh, uh, because sponsors such as Kimberly Clark, who had two factories in El Salvador, (laughs) Vidal Sassoon, Cadbury's, dropped sponsorship, but another vice president said that they still had sponsors standing in line to take on the show. Sure, the show was very successful. They said that with with the ending of MASH, they were worried that they would just not have a strong enough Monday night lineup. But I also heard uh, of third sources that uh, Bill Paley came in and saw the board as it stood. And said, What's that doing? Get out! Get it off! Wow. So we were axed. And we had 1,000, 2,000 people marching around CBS the first Monday, the second Monday. People spoke out. Yeah. And I had that gratification. I was also going through my separation with my wife. Oh, It was a very rigorous time. I felt very alone. Not bad. Yeah. Uh.
0: And yet that again. that makes you stronger. Again, it can. It doesn't to everybody. No. Back up just a little bit, because you, cause you left out Mary Tyler Moore.
1: Well, Lou Grant came after Mary Tyler Moore.
0: Right. So how did that happen?
1: Can I tell them more? Yeah. I went into audition. Uh, Alan and Jim, the producer writers, uh, for Lou, I read, and they said, that's a very intelligent reading. And I said, and I realized, that means it's not funny.
0: Right.
1: So they said, when we have you back to read it, can I read it crazy, wild, wiggy, wild? So I said, uh, well, uh, I sort of walk out and I said, well, "Why don't you have me try it that wing on? If I don't do it, right?" Then I don't, don't have, have to ha- come don't back. Don't right? have me back. <laughs> and they were you know, taken aback by that. And I said, "Well, oh, yeah, 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 yeah. so they said uh, we have another appointment. But go ahead." So I read it crazy and wild, and uh, they laughed their asses off. And I said, "Read it just like that when you come back to read Mary." Uh, two weeks later, I came back to read Mary, and I read it. I said, what the hell did I do? What did I do? There was no rhyme or reason to what I did. I read it like I'm a sugarner. So I tried it that way. And they laughed again and said, thank you. And I laughed. And uh, she said, are you serious? <laughs> and uh, I said, that's your Lou Grant.
0: Were you surprised?
1: No, because they had laughed. Yeah,
0: right. You knew that you had them? hmm yeah. Were you surprised at how successful it was?
1: Uh, it didn't matter. It really didn't matter. Because it was the best character and the best scripts yeah. I had read right. in the nine years I'd been in L.A.
0: Well, it was. Yeah. It was so wonderful.
1: I was a character actor, so I pursued the dramas. I was, so I was afraid of comedy.
0: Amazing. Although I was
1: good at it. Yeah. So that each week we did it uh, became more secure and more pronounced and uh, more confident yeah so that by the end I said you got comedy let me have it <laughs> I'm not afraid anymore no
0: so I read somewhere that you are the only actor who got an Emmy for both comedy and drama and for the same character yeah. That's pretty amazing Look at. Yes, it is.
1: But it's just the other side of the coin, isn't it?
0: The other side of the coin from... Well,
1: one inside's head's the other's the ass.
0: Yes, it's true. And you've had Once both. Once again,
1: the, the clue.
0: Yeah, right. And you have had both in spades, haven't you? Yeah. I always uh, ask, given that you have given your whole life to this thing which you won't call an art, but I will. Yeah. Uh, If there's anything that you want to say about what it's been like to dedicate a life to being an actor. Well,
1: I've been lucky. I mean, you can't even use me as a good example. Mm -hmm. Making a few bucks a week, and even when I wasn't acting, and working in steel mills or uh, auto plants people might be tempted to say uh, well you, you really put your ass on the line blah, blah, blah. and I said no not really uh, because they knew I could always drop a dime that's what a phone cost in those days <laughs> a dime mm-hmm. and make a call and say I'm starving will you please send money
0: you mean because you you had support from your family you knew that they
1: were behind you I knew th- I knew that I could Call and say, yes. "Help me out this time." I never had to make that call, but it gives you an enormous spine to to be the uh, egoistic fucking actor you are. <laughs>
0: you know, um, I I'm so glad you said this because I really believe, and I hear it a lot, um, the the support of family it makes so much difference. So much risk is possible mm-hmm. because. That's there. Not just financial support, but emotional support. You know that well, they love each, you. Each
1: time you call upon them, that spine will get weaker and weaker in terms of what you stand up for, and uh, you know, um, until you finally go off.
0: <laughs> off the radar. Half
1: cocked. And, and say, fuck it all. Uh, I, I stand for this. Mm-hmm. And... Uh, uh, and I, I can remember we had arguments in our theater group where one of the producers, actor-producers, said, uh, I don't care if there's one person in that audience,
0: uh,
1: uh, if we're doing the right stuff. And I thought, no, no, I don't go along with that. No, no, no. And I've been in the audience when there were <laughs> ten people there. I said, no, no, that's... That, that's we We have to... Redirect ourselves. Find out what we can do uh, to still get an audience in, and still and, do the right and stuff. And still do some of the right mm-hmm.
0: stuff. It's a compromise. Yeah, mm-hmm.
1: I don't, I don't, I don't go that route. And I, I can remember, for instance, uh, when uh, some blacklisted writers and actors got together and, and did a film on the uh, striking miners in. Uh, Era, it was either Arizona or New Mexico. Paul, Paul Sills and David Shepard agreed that they could use uh, our theater on the off night to show the film. Mm-hmm. And Zora Lampert's husband at the time, Bill Alton, he heard about it and he said to the actors, no, wait, a minute, wait a minute, wait a minute. Be careful. Our lives are dependent on this. open do, do we want to be damned? With that brush. And we should have a voice in this. So Paul and David said, okay, why don't you guys vote on it? And we voted against it. Uh, it Embarrassing for Paul and David, but I think they learned a lesson. And and I was not proud of it. And I later bought my house from Biberman after all of this. (laughs) how about that (laughs) yeah um I was not proud of it uh there was another commie occurrence I'm trying to I had it and then I lost it
0: we'll come back (sighs)
1: so oh yeah on Monday night I was quite intrigued um so Studs Terkel was more or less blacklisted at the time. Mm-hmm. And he had gotten together uh, a program called Elizabethan Miscellany. He had Big Bill Brunzi singing uh, 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 his jazz. Uh, he had Elizabethan Contra Tenor performing. And he had somebody else. Oh, Wynn Strackey, I think, of the Weavers was mm-hmm. also on. And so we—they put out cards, invitation cards, so on and so on. And uh, it went on; it came off very nicely. One, one card came back. Lovely—it was a very pretty invitation card. And on it was a very fancy stamp, an, ad, an added stamp. Very nicely illustrated everything, which said "Fight, Come, UN." ism and then in red grease pencil around studs his name was keep this red out of Chicago I was fascinated I mean they 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 spared no expense right very interesting to me and uh, I thought, we have seen the enemy, and they is them.
0: I admire integrity almost more than anything. And I always know it when I see it. I'll make faces. And I am incredibly grateful.
1: Oh. Well your brother had a nice face it's a
0: good thing my brother has a nice face that is absolutely the truth thank you so much you. <laughs> mm. <laughs> yeah. all right I'm going to I'm going to leave you but I really don't want to.